If you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter this morning. We continue to examine this passage. As I see it right now, we have at least another couple of weeks on the first three verses here of chapter seven. If you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's word, please. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who led Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, remains priest. Continue. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace and glory. We pray, Father, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give us understanding, and that you would teach us, Father, what you say and how to honor you. God, help us see Christ and help us see the glory that has been revealed. And help us to do what you tell us to do. Because of who you are, not because of who we are. Lord, deliver us from selfishness and deliver us from the things that make us believe that our abilities or our weaknesses will either enable or hinder our faithful obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. We are told here of many things that Melchizedek was without. He was without any of the normal comforts and pleasures of this life, without any of the support, without any of the permissions that become inherent in your family status. See, we tend to think that it's the things that we've been given that determine our abilities and our possibilities. We tend to think that we can be disqualified to serve or even to belong to God by the mistakes that we've made or by the things that we have not done or do not possess. But this man was utterly without these things. And still, he is who he is, and he does what he does. So I want to think of what it means this morning that Melchizedek was without. First of all, we're told that he was without father. Now, it doesn't follow for us very much to recognize what a dire circumstance this would be for somebody in that culture. To recognize that, that our blessings are conveyed by the Father's heritage, by the Father's name. So a person who has no father really is, is starting out um, a little bit behind the eight ball, if you will. Genesis 26.3 says, Dwell in this land and I will be with you, and I will bless you, for to you and to your descendants I give all of these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. Now that's God speaking to Isaac as Isaac was considering leaving the promised land and going to Egypt. And God was telling him, no, no, I made a promise to your father. And because I made this promise to your father, you are the inheritor of what I promised him. So don't go anywhere. Don't run away on the promise. It's your birthright because of who your father is. And just a little bit later in that chapter, verse 24, he says, The Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham, 
Do not fear, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So what we see here is that not only did Isaac inherit the blessing because of his father, but also that blessing was then passed on through him to his descendants because he would be their father. So this, this descent of the blessing, this reality is really important. And it's one that we don't tend to really understand. We live in a world where somebody without a father, yeah, okay, they, there, there's some problems and there's some challenges that they face, but we don't see it as this huge black mark on their lives that's going to scar them forever. In fact, in our culture today, more and more children are growing up in homes without fathers, and we can understand that this is a terrible circumstance and that there are dire consequences in their lives because we look at the world through a biblical perspective. But for the rest of the world, they don't see it. They don't even think it matters. It's, it's, it's so off the chart of what's important that it's hard for us to really comprehend. But understand that according to the scripture, a father is a blessing to his children. A father is somebody that God has given to lead and to guide and to protect, to instruct, to discipline. And it is a true thing that when God gives a godly father to a child, that he gives a blessing without measure. Now, Melchizedek, then, we're told, was without this father's heritage. He was bereft of this for our sake. To some degree or another, Jesus himself was bereft of this father's heritage. We know that Joseph was alive when Jesus was 12, but we also know that by the time Jesus began his ministry, Joseph was no longer with him. Most people believe that Joseph died fairly early in Jesus' life. He was a carpenter. He was much older than Mary. He probably did not have 15 years in Jesus' life. More than likely, Joseph died when Jesus was a young teenager. So Jesus grew up without a father. He grew up without this, this blessing in his life. Although he did have the father's name, he did have some of the things that went with it, Jesus was cast on to a different father. He was cast on to the arms of God, his true father. And it's important for us to recognize that he was bereft of this for our sake. This blessing, which is inherently promised to children who grow up in homes that are structured according to the, to the will and the purpose of God, Jesus was denied this. Melchizedek was denied this according to Scripture. He was bereft of this. It's also important for us to recognize that the priesthood passed through the line of the Father. So, who could be eligible to be a priest? Well, we read in Numbers chapter 17 today that God chose Aaron. That God demonstrated his choosing of Aaron and that he demonstrated it by the rod that budded. And then there are other places in Scripture where it talks about the priesthood being given to Aaron and to his sons. So the priests who were to lead the worship of Israel and to be the high priest and to oversee this, they came from the line of Aaron, which meant that Melchizedek was not given the heritage, according to Scripture, that should have allowed him to be a priest of God. He didn't have that. He was before even Levi was born. He was before the children of 
of, of Abraham were even conceived, all of Abraham's descent was still inside of his body prior to his encounter with Melchizedek, which is the, the point that the writer of Hebrews is using, that in Abraham giving his worship and his tithe to Melchizedek, he was demonstrating that the priesthood that Melchizedek possessed already was greater than the priesthood that would be passed on to the descent of Levi and particularly to the descent of Aaron and his children. Um, this priesthood is something that is derived by God's specific blessing to him. It doesn't look on the circumstances that man would look on. We look at somebody, we look at their circumstances, we look at their abilities, we look at their giftedness, we look at their, their opportunities, we look at their education, and we say, you are suited for these things. That's man's opinion. That's our outward look at what somebody is able to do. But the truth of how God sees us is more like this. I have called you to do this thing. And in calling you to do this thing, I will provide all that you need to accomplish what I have called you to do. It's a very different structure, but it's one that scares us because we're much more comfortable with our abilities, with our education, with our experience, with our desires, with our this and our that. But what we see in this, this Melchizedek being without a father, which did not give him the right to be a priest according to his family, we see a priesthood that stands above that. We see a priesthood that is directly originated in the mind and the will of God. And that's important for us to recognize. Because what God has done is given to us the ability to do what he calls us to do according to his command. Another blessing that would have been important in this question of a father was the question of land. The land was inherited by the son through the line of the father. And again, we find that Jesus himself was bereft of that inheritance. In Luke chapter 9, verse 58, he said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus was bereft of that inheritance. Melchizedek being without father, although he was the king of Salem, it's a strange thing to consider. But it also tells us that he was without mother. Now, remember that the descent of Abraham, the descent of Adam was also the descent of Eve. Uh, we're told that, in fact, she's given the name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Sarah was also the mother of promise. And interestingly enough, if you think about it, God's promise to Sarah may have more significance than his promise to Abraham. Because Abraham had children by other women who were not Sarah, and those children were not the descent of the promise. God said specifically that your seed will come through Sarah. So it's important to recognize that the mother has a part in this as well. She is the one who cares for the children. She sees the need. She provides for the children. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 19, speaking about Hannah and, and her child Samuel. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. See, mothers provide stability and nurture in the day-to-day -day life of the home. And being without this shows both the need and the truth that this man was resilient and stable and that he was able to look for his sustenance to some place besides 
human ability. Ultimately, what this means is that Melchizedek, being without father and without mother, was largely without family. We depend upon the family that has been given to us. See, God himself cares intensely for those who do not have a family. Which is why he tells us in James what true religion is, is defined like this. James chapter 1, verse 27. It says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, the majesty of this is that this is truly part of the story of our adoption. God's love for them is bound into the very fabric of his nature. And he desires to provide and to care for them and desires to provide and to care for us. And God knows that we were all orphans. Every last one of us, whether we had a human family or not, we were orphans as far as spiritual things were concerned. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, told them that they are of their father, the devil, and he is not a very good father. <laughs> he wants nothing but to destroy. He wants nothing but to kill. He wants nothing but to dominate and to ruin everything that he touches. And he is still at work today, seeking to destroy and to dominate and to kill everything that he can. And ultimately, what we need to recognize is that God was determined to rescue us from that bondage. Um, and it speaks to his very nature. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6 say, A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. He sets the solitary in families, and he brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Now, to speak more specifically to this, look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. See, God brought us into his own family. He adopted us so that we would not be cast off and that we would not be bound and under this bondage of being alone. Which means that ultimately we need to recognize that we, as well as Christ, as well as Melchizedek, are utterly dependent on God for everything. It is the chief characteristic of Christ that he was dependent upon God. He is absolutely clear that God is the one who has been caring for him, not only in his incarnation, but eternally, the triune God cares for himself. God loves the Son, God loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son and the Father, and the Son loves both the Spirit and the Father as well. Psalm 29, 27 verses 9 and 10 say, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Now truthfully, we understand that the identity of children is largely determined by the father and his ways. And this is the child of God. 
that this is what it means for us to belong to him. It defines Christ in his very nature and his very identity. Um, John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, answered and said, And my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Verse 18 gives us some clarity on what that meant. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, think about this with me for a minute. Here's this boy, this young man, who has been a carpenter, who has not come from the tribe of, of Levi. He is of the tribe of Judah. And he has no right whatsoever to be a priest or a religious leader of any kind. He has no formal religious education, and yet he is instructing the Sanhedrin on what is true and what is false. He is instructing the religious leaders on their own errors, and he is teaching them about the nature of God in such a way that they are so challenged by the things that he says that they have decided that he must be put to death. And ultimately, the thing that he has said, which has offended them more than anything, is that he is the Son of God. And that as he is the Son of God, he himself is equal to who God is. Now, that, that doesn't really compute to our mind. Um, Lester is my son, and if Lester is my son, Lester is not me. Right? Make sense? He's Lester. I'm Lester, but we're not the same person. However, to the mind of the Jew and in that culture, there was an, an equating which goes between father and son, which is a large part of a person's identity. So Jesus is laying claim to God being his father, and he is identifying himself with God profoundly and absolutely, so that even as he is doing so, they aren't missing the point. Now, I want you to pay attention to the fact that Jesus doesn't identify himself as the son of Joseph. He doesn't identify himself as the son of Mary. In fact, at one point in his ministry, the, the, his mother and, and his other siblings came to get him because he was saying things that made them fear that he had lost his mind. They were going to collect him. They were going to take him someplace so that they could restore him to sanity and the disciples who were gathered around him said, your mother and, and your brothers and sisters are waiting outside to see you. And Jesus said, no, no, my, my mother and my brothers and my sisters are these here who love God because of me. Those who are here who follow after me, they're my family. They're my mother. They're my father. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. This is my family. And we need to recognize the truth that for us as followers of Christ, you may not come from a family that honors God. You may not come from a heritage which says that your identity is, hey, I'm a Christian man. I've come from a long line of Christian stock. I've got preachers on both sides of my family. Don't hold that against me. And, and so in the end, we may not come from that background. But that doesn't mean that you're not qualified to pursue Christ. You might be the first generation of followers of Christ in an entire line of family. You might be the very first one that God has ever called out of your generation, out of your family, out of your, your ancestry. And that, that doesn't mean that you are not qualified to serve. Because who has become your father when you are brought into the family of God? God has. 
He has become your identity. He has become the one that makes you who you are. He has become the one that will sustain you. He has become the one that will allow you to do what he has called you to do. Jesus identified himself according to his relationship with God. Melchizedek does the same thing. We find in him this connection to God which points us to Christ. We find in him this connection which says, I'm not worried about who I am. And, and if Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ, then we're speaking about the same person. If he's not, it's still the same lesson. What we see is that he is not pointing to his heritage to defend his life or his ministry or his testimony. He is instead pointing to the God who he serves. That's a powerful lesson for us. Because it doesn't matter where you came from. It matters what God is calling you to do. It matters what God is calling you to be. It matters what God is equipping you to be and to do. It matters what he has put in front of you, not what he has left behind you. This is an important thing for us to grasp. Because it moves into how we do what he called us to do. See, Jesus said that everything he did, he did in submission to the will of the Father. John chapter 5, verses 25 and 27, he said this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So what does this give us? It gives us the reality that it is Christ who will give life. It is Christ who calls the dead to life. He will hear the voice and they will live. They were dead and God made them hear. And through that hearing, he made them live. And in the end, he has granted the son authority to execute judgment according to his own will. So God has said, look, I'm giving you the power to call the dead to life. I'm giving you the power to raise them on to be my sons. And I'm also giving you the power to execute judgment over the whole earth. Nobody else has that right. God has not given the right of judgment to Buddha. He has not given the right of judgment to Muhammad. He has not given the right of judgment to the Pope or to priests or to any other person. He has not given the right of judgment to anyone but himself. And he gave the right of judgment to Christ. And it is Christ before whose throne we will appear on the day of judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I trust we are also well known in your conscience. So this whole idea of judgment comes down to this fact. It is God giving the authority to Christ to stand in judgment over all of creation. And it is Christ who executes that judgment according to the will of the Father. So what enables in both directions is the relationship between Christ and his Father, God. Not his human father, not his human heritage, not the things that, that people would look at and say, this is your ability, you're a carpenter, go build cabinets. This is how he saw himself. I am the son of God because he was the son of God. 
And since I am the Son of God, the thing that defines me most importantly is my relationship to my Father, God. Nothing else matters. Beloved, hear me. You have been adopted into the family of God. You are sons and daughters of the Most High. And as such, nothing matters about your identity more than who you are in Christ. Do not allow the world to define you by the things that you have done or the things that you have not done. By the places where you have succeeded or the places where you have failed. Do not allow the world to put that judgment upon you. Because the only judgment that matters is the judgment that Christ himself will give. And Christ will judge according to whether or not you belong to him. Period. That's the judgment. And that's the place where we have to learn to stand, is in who we are in Christ. He would do absolutely nothing without God's direction. John chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. He will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For the fa- as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus would do absolutely nothing apart from the will of God and apart from the direction that God gave him. And how did he know what it was? Because he was always watching the Father to see what the Father would do. So if you're going to cut yourself adrift from the influence of the world and from the things that the world says you're supposed to do by what you've done and what you've learned and how you've been and all these things, if you're going to set yourself free from that, then you need to set yourself intentionally to have your eyes and heart fixed on the face of God. You need to make certain that everything that you're doing, you're doing with an eye towards Him and towards His pleasure and towards His desire. You need to be making certain that the thing that defines you is what the Scripture says about who you are in Christ. The thing that defines you is what God Himself speaks to you through His Word. We have to anchor everything in the truth of who God is and in the truth of who God says we are. Nothing else matters. And it's so important for us to set ourselves free, or be set free, rather, from those sort of influences and judgments and expectations that the world places on us because of its own agenda. We have to be clear about this. God has determined that we would walk in His way. God has determined that we would walk in His truth. God has determined that we would make a difference in the world for the sake of His name and for the sake of His glory because He loves us enough to include us in the work that He Himself is doing. So the job before us is to set our eyes on Him. The job before us is to pay attention to His glory and His will. So even as Jesus walked, so also we must walk, dependent upon Christ who is our life, and who has given us life because the will of God and His own pleasure defines us as such. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And he who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, we've been given to Christ according to the will of God. John chapter 6, verse 43 through 45 says, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets that they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Now, the remarkable thing about this is that it gives us absolute assurance that if we have been saved, if we have been brought into the family of God, you are in the family of God because God himself desired you to be so. Just think about that for a minute. That there is no way in the world for somebody to enter into the family of God and have God go, I don't really want him. I don't like him. He's icky. You might be icky. Some of you are. <laughs> but God loves you and made you his own. Amen. God gave you the grace of drawing you into his family. And the fact that you love Jesus is not why you are in the family, but evidence that you are. Because nobody loves Jesus until God makes them love Jesus. Nobody desires him until God changes their heart. And the fact that he's given you a heart for his son and called you into that relationship is evidence that God desired you to be there. It's his will. Take joy in that. Take delight in the fact that you have been brought into the family of God and you've been brought in inexorably by the grace that gives you life. John 6, verses 37 and 38 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This also means that you are kept by this one who honors God above all else. John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40 says this. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing. And I should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And that means for us that no matter what it is that God calls us to do, no matter how God draws us into the world to function for his kingdom, he's not going to lose you. He's not going to lose sight of where you are. He's not going to let you go. You're not going to end up out someplace so far away from him that you're never going to find him again. And I understand that when you start serving the king, that the enemy will come against you, that he will hit you in places that, that hurt and he will strike you and he will wound you and he will do everything in his power to make you hate God. In, in, our, in our Sunday morning Bible study prior to church, we're studying through the book of Job and we're seeing just how hard God, through Satan, beat Job and how hard God pummeled him to prove the point that you can never go so far that God will lose you. And even though Job came very close to renouncing his faith in God and then crying out and saying, I quit, I'm done, he never went that far. He never could because God had hold of him. <clears throat> it wasn't about Job holding on to God. It wasn't about Job's power and Job's faith. We can talk about the faith of Job. We talk about the patience of Job. But truthfully, it's the power of God that sustained him. And for us as followers of Christ, understand that the promise is this. You will never fail so badly that God will cast you off. And you will never far so fall that God never fall so far that God will not take hold of you. And in the end, everything that happens and everything that you are is born from the reality that God has a will for your life. And He will certainly work out that will. And He will certainly work out that purpose. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. And since you have been bought with a price, God has a purpose for the purchase. Does that make sense? So all the things that we tend to look at and say, I can't do that. 
They don't matter. All the reasons that you can put on the table to say, I can't serve. I can't follow. I don't have that. I'm without this ability. I'm without this heritage. I'm without this lineage. I'm without this experience. I'm without this time. I'm without these resources. All of those withouts only cast you upon the mercy and the grace of God. And that's the point. Because if God only called people who could do it obviously in the will and the strength of their own arm, how would he receive glory from them doing what everybody looks at and go, well, of course he could do it. Look at all that money he's got. Right? It's like the guy that gets a billion dollar trust fund who goes on about how you're supposed to, you know, invest your money and live wisely on your $5 an hour income. Well, it helps if you have the billion dollar trust fund. It makes it a little easier to go a long way on $5 an hour. Amen? We can look at people who have all of these natural abilities and we can say to ourselves, of course they could do it. Look at what they have. And God receives no glory from that. But when God brings somebody who doesn't have the natural abilities, doesn't have the things that would say, of course this guy can do it, and then he does it through them, how amazing it is. And how much glory God himself is receiving from somebody just being faithful to do what God tells them to do. That's what we're all called to do. And it means that we're going to be brought to the place where we look at our own abilities and our own resources and say, none of that matters. Those things are not why I'm called. Those things are not what define me. Those things are not the things that make me who I am. What makes me who I am is who I am in Christ. Because ultimately what we find is that Melchizedek is given to us without genealogy. Now, the actions in the history of the forebearers, it's a mark carried by the descendants. And this truth is important for us to wrestle out because it's part of what is contained in the principle of the second commandment. Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 4, says this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Now, for anybody that's been having discussions with Catholics about the Ten Commandments, let me be very clear. This is a commandment unto itself. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That deals with who we worship. The second commandment is about how we worship. It's about the practice of our worship. And God clearly defines what we shall and shall not do in our worship. We shall not make for ourselves images, idols, bow down to them. Pray to them. Adore them as, as saints and figures and, and little talismans that we think are going to help us find lost things. Um, but God goes on to give us a reason. Verse 5, he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, before we go any further, I need to address the fact that this cursing of children for the sake of the sin of the Father has been lifted in New Testament times. No longer is there a direct correlation between you sin, therefore your children will bear the consequence of that sin for four generations. However, I do need to say this. Much of this is a generational sin that is learned by observation. 
It's why we see sins tend to last in families. It's why we see that fathers who end up in prison tend to have children who go to prison. More often than not, the statistics are very frightening. And it's not because God has placed a curse on them. It's because children look to their parents. And they draw their sense of normal from what their parents show them. They draw their sense of what is right and what is wrong from the atmosphere in the home from which they live. It's very unusual for children to come to church if their parents also don't come to church. It's very unusual for children whose parents are in church to not grow up and stay in church. Provided their parents actually loved God and honored Him, not just went through the motions. Okay? There is an inheritance given to us by the examples that we see and the examples that we set. It's very important for us to understand this because we are talking about making new patterns. It's really impressive if you go back and look through the, through the book of Kings and the books of, of Chronicles, how often we find this line, according to all that his father had done. So we have a listing of kings, and it says that he committed the sins and he worshipped the Baals according to all that his father had done. And he worshipped the Astaroths according to all that his father had done. But then it's also given for kings who dwelt in righteousness. And it says that he walked as his father before him. And he did what was right in the sight of God according to all that his father had done. And so it's this idea that this, this pattern that we demonstrate for our children actually matters. Now, being without a genealogy means that you're kind of making this up. You're kind of establishing a new pattern. And that's the point that I want to draw for us to recognize the hope that comes, especially if you are, um, let's call it a landmark Christian, right? Somebody who is a, a new beginning for, for a family that has not really ever walked with God. But now you are. If that defines you, then you need to recognize that the patterns that you are establishing will have an impact on generations to come. The patterns that you are establishing as you are walking in truth and walking in righteousness, they're going to change the destiny of generations and generations and generations. And not because of some sort of magical thinking, but because children learn primarily to do what they're taught. They learn primarily to walk in the ways and the patterns that have been shown to them. That's why it's so important that we recognize the fact that our children might listen to what we say, but they are watching what you do. Everything you do goes into the register. Everything that you do gets tracked in that little brain, and all of a sudden what matters is not what you say to them, but what you do in front of them. They're always watching. They're always seeing. They're always observing. And they're always copying. That's how they learn. It's how they grow. It's how they develop. So if you're a person who is starting out a whole new pattern for a life, and you're saying, you know what, I don't have this heritage of godly obedience, but I, I, I've been made new, I've been made alive in Christ, it's incredibly important that you set yourself to follow after Christ. It's incredibly important that you set yourself with your eyes steadfastly fixed on the face of the Father. And you understand that you are establishing patterns that will work out their power in the lives of those who come. You say, well, how in the world am I supposed to do that? I never learned it from anybody else. Well, that's exactly the point for all of this. You lean on God. 
You lean in. You press in. You say, Lord, help me see. Help me understand. Help me walk in truth. Help me obey. Help me take what you're showing me in your word and put it to work in my life. Because I don't have any practical pattern. I don't have any practical experience. I don't have anybody who can show me, put your foot here, walk here, do this, stop here, turn here, bend there, obey this. God, I need you to do that. And the magnificent thing about the grace of our God is that he will do exactly that. So often, whether you come from a line of, of a godly heritage and, and are moving forward into new territory or whether you come from a line without a godly heritage and you're moving forward into that new territory, in the end, when you need something from God, God will provide it. And it's glorious. We allow our fears and our sense of inadequacy to keep us from obedience. Because the only thing that we fix our eyes on is what we know. But that doesn't define you. That doesn't make you who you are. What makes you who you are is who God says you are. And what makes you who you are is what God calls you to do and what God calls you to be. It's His Word and it's His power and it's His truth. And we have to get past this thing where we look at our abilities and we, we check our checkbook balance and we say, well, I can do this. And I don't mean your physical checkbook. I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about you look at the things that you say. Okay, in my, in my benefit column, I have this ability and this skill and this experience and this talent. I can do that. Okay, maybe God's going to call you to do that. Or maybe... God's going to call you to do something so far out of your own comfort and so far out of your own ability that you're totally blown away by the fact that God, you're calling me to do this. I don't have any experience. I don't have any understanding. I don't have any ability to do that. And God says, yes. And when you lean on me, I will help you obey, help you do what I'm calling you to do. See, we allow our past and our experience and our understanding to keep us from obedience. But what we have to do is understand that Christ calls us to lean in. He calls us to press into Him and to understand that He is our provision. That's why He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus was telling us how to find what we needed. You need truth in your life? Well, who do you turn to? Christ. You're confused about the way, how to get where you need to be, how to do what he's calling you to do. Where do you turn? Christ. You need life. <laughs> you, you, need, you need some strength and some power in your bones to give you the ability to stand up and obey. Who is your source for that? Christ. This is his to do. If he's called you to do something outside of your ability, if he's called you to do something so far beyond your capacity or your understanding or your experience, understand that that makes him responsible to provide what you don't have. He's the one that called you. You didn't make it up. You didn't run to him and say, okay, God, this is what I'm going to do and, and, and bless me by golly. If God's called you to do something, then he's responsible to make sure that you can. And what's awesome about it is that he will. He will. He will provide every need in order to allow you to be obedient. We also find 
that this means that this person is without history. We have three verses in the Old Testament that tell us about Melchizedek. We have a couple of verses in Psalms that reference him, which the writer of Hebrews quotes when he says, I've made you a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But that's really all we know about him. We don't know much about his life. We don't know anything about the things that he did except this one encounter with Abraham. It means that his past actions have no bearing whatsoever on this point of his life that is the thing that we get. Let, let's assume for just a moment that I'm wrong, that Melchizedek was a man like anybody else, that he was not a pre-incarnate Christ, and that he was a king who had a kingdom. None of that matters. It doesn't matter at all anything that he did up to this point. And it doesn't matter at all anything that he does after this point. What matters is this moment. And what you're going to find as you follow after Christ is that all the things that lead you up to some place and all the things that lead you up to a moment of decision and a moment of obedience, these, these moments of absolute frisson, when you stand in that place, the only thing that really matters is that moment. The only thing that really matters is that moment of obedience and that moment of encounter with God and that moment wherein God himself speaks into your life and changes you forever. See, we, we want to drag all that other baggage along with us. We want to drag along with us all the things that... that we used to be and all the things that we used to do and all the things that used to scare us and all the things that we're scared might come again. None of those things matter. The only thing that matters is right here and right now and this moment when God is speaking to you. The next moment when God speaks to you again, that's going to be the one that matters at that point. And you have to recognize that truth. You have to understand that this place is, is a sacred moment. Whenever God speaks to you, it's a sacred moment. It's a time when God himself is intervening in your life. You see, the real hope comes from the promise of forgiveness when we repent from sin. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 and following. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that the iniquity will not be ruined. Cast away from you all transgressions which you have committed. And get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Look, you may be looking at your life and saying to yourself, I, I want to serve God, but I've ruined it far too much. And I can't. It doesn't matter. Turn from your sin. Repent. Seek the face of God and find in Him forgiveness. If God forgives you and casts away your sin as far as the east is from the west, there is nothing that is gone from you that will prohibit you from obedience today. There is nothing gone from you that will prohibit you from following after the King. This moment is the moment when God is speaking to you. 
And this moment is the moment when God is calling you to obedience. And all the things that you've gotten wrong leading up to right now only matter that you would repent. They have no bearing on what God called you to do. They do not enter into this question in any way. Because you are not going to be judged according to the sins of the fathers, nor the sin of the mothers, nor even your past sin. Repent of your sin, hope in Christ, and find in Him the mercy to be born again and the inheritance of the saints in the life. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Everybody sing the song now in your head. You're welcome. You can sing it all day long. I'm good this. At the end of the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus called him down. He said, I'm, I'm coming to have dinner with you. Zacchaeus, you come down, or I'm going to your house today, right? There's the song again. Now I'm doing it to myself. What happened after? The song ends far too soon. The song ends there. Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. Yay! Zacchaeus got to have dinner with Jesus. That's the beginning of the story. You missed the best part. Listen to the best part. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anybody by false accusations, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, Jesus called Zacchaeus unto himself, and Zacchaeus was changed. And the first response of a newly living heart is repentance. And Zacchaeus repented of his past evil. By restoring everything that he had stolen. He had been a tax collector, which we all know is nothing but legalized thievery. Because taxes are thievery. But I digress. He had been a man who took a lot of things that were not his. He went above and beyond the tax code and took stuff because he could the way it was structured in Rome, a tax collector was hired and he wasn't paid. He was given the authority to, to collect taxes and he was given an armed entourage to make sure that what he demanded was given. And typically they would take half or four times more than they were supposed to take. So what Zacchaeus says is, look, I've made myself stinking rich by stealing from your people. And so I'm going to restore everything that I stole four times more than the four I stole in the first place. That's repentance. It changes you. It alters your perspective. It changes the way that you see the world. And the best part of the story is Jesus' statement. Life has come. Salvation has come to this house. Because I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm fulfilling my purpose in this moment. And beloved, hear me. The fact that Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a thief and a liar and an icky sort of dude did not mean anything when he repented and was made a new. He didn't. He is now in heaven. <laughs> You're going to get to see that wee little man someday. And ask him if he knows the song. 
but here's the truth. Whatever it is that you bring before the cross and whatever it is that you bring into the equation matters just as little. Repent. Turn from your sin. Because it is for the reason of salvation that Christ came into the world. I came into the world to save, to save that which was lost. And it doesn't matter if you think you're qualified. It doesn't matter if you think you're clean enough. It doesn't matter if you think, well, I've got to sort out these things in my life first. And I've got to change these things first. And then I'll get right with God. That's completely wrong. You, you clean those things up because you have been made right with God. And you no longer can abide their presence in your life. You clean those things up after you have encountered the risen Christ. Because he makes you see them for what they are. And when he does that, you don't want them anymore. You don't desire evil. Because now you love him. This is a moment of transformation that disregards your entire past. It doesn't matter what you were. It only matters that now you are something different. This is the promise that's been made to us in Christ. We come to a God who says to us, everything you were, I set aside. Think about the Apostle Paul. When we first encounter Paul, where do we find him? Anybody know the first place he's mentioned in Scripture? Holding the coats of the people who were murdering Stephen. Giving his approval to the death of the first Christian martyr. And then, a few chapters later, we encounter Paul again, breathing out threats against the church. Pursuing their destruction, leaving Jerusalem with a writ for the arrest, detainment, and execution of all the Christians he finds. And then he encounters the risen Christ. And everything changes. It, it didn't matter what he had done, God had a purpose for his life. And it didn't matter where. He thought his life was going. God had a purpose for his life. It didn't matter all the things that we would look at in somebody's life and say, this is what defines him. Because God had defined him according to his own pleasure. God had called him out and God had prepared for him a work which you wouldn't think would be the work given to somebody who was made famous killing Christians. I mean, Paul was a big name by the time he encountered the risen Christ. He had been running around catching, murdering, and, and detaining Christians for a while, a few years. The death of Stephen emboldened the persecution against the church, and Paul was a big part of that. It, it, it was such that when he was first converted... The Christians said, no, no, I'm, I'm afraid we don't want to have anything to do with this guy, Paul. In fact, the man who God sent to restore Paul's sight said, Lord, you, you know who he is, right? <laughs> he, he came here to arrest us. He came here to kill us. 
doesn't matter what you've been. And it doesn't even matter what you think you're going to be. It only matters that you obey the risen Christ. And that you recognize that everything that defines you comes from Him. Because if you try to define yourself according to you and according to your ability and your agenda and your ideas and your experiences and your power and your giftednesses and all those things, if you try to define yourself according to that, you will define yourself wrongly. Because you do not know who you are. And you do not know who you will be. Only God knows that. And he will introduce you to who you are and introduce you to who you will be as you lean in and follow him. He will teach you. You will walk in the way. You see that same Paul? He defined himself this way. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul will be he knew what he'd done. And that knowledge didn't stop him from obedience. It didn't stop him from following after Christ. It didn't stop him from, from pressing in. And he used that point not to say, I'm constantly beating myself up over my past sins. If you read his writings, you know that wasn't the issue. He made this statement as a platform with which to say, whatever it is you've done, I did worse and God still uses me. Whatever it is that you think that you are, I was worse and God still chose me. He used that statement as a platform to erase their objections and to remind them that Christ is enough. And I would tell you in this day, whatever it is that you're facing, that Christ is enough. That Christ is enough to set you straight and to correct whatever it is that's wrong. That Christ is enough to establish His supremacy in your life and to make your life beautiful in every way. I don't care what ickfest you have brought to the table. Christ is enough to set us straight. So, as we come before Him, recognize that who you were is not the issue. Who you are right now is not the issue. Who you will be in Christ, that's the issue. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us grace in this day. We pray, Lord, that you would make us mindful of the truth and that you would help us understand, God, that you have called us to a purpose that is beyond our understanding. Help us see the glory that's been revealed and help us see the glory that's being offered. Let us walk in the truth that we have been made new in you. And let us live that out so that all the world might see your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.